Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. episode of There's Still Time, the AFTN Soccer Show. And as the global shutdown of football continues, we've got another packed show for you to hopefully keep you entertained and just keep your mind off watching the news for a little bit. So we're going to do what we can to amuse and entertain you over the next two hours. Hopefully we succeed. You can let us know if we do or don't. The Joe Corona football lockdown is continuing. Who would have thought that red card he got against the Whitecaps at the start of March would have had such an impact? But it has. Leagues shut down all across the world, apart from Belarus, as we mentioned last week. We'll have a little bit more on that later. No end in sight to the crisis either, which has, of course, got everyone wondering just when is football going to return in different places around the world? Are the, the leagues in Europe going to see an end to their seasons? Some of them have already called it. What's going to happen over here in North America? What will the MLS season eventually look like? Will it even restart? Could it restart without the Canadian teams? Will the Canadian Premier League season be up and running? We're going to be joined shortly by Gideon Hill to look at all those topics and a few more things as well. But before we get into all that, I want to bring you a little bit of audio from Vancouver Whitecaps sporting director Axel Schuster. Just with his thoughts on some of those issues. Wrote a little bit of an article on AFTN about that this week. So this is just some audio from a conference call that he had during the week with a, a few of us media members. Let's hear what Axel had to say on the return of MLS and what it could mean for the Whitecaps and the Whitecaps Canadian players this season. I've got a question for Axel. Uh, just regarding, obviously nobody really knows what's happening this season or how long it's going to last for the, the shutdown. Have there been talks as to what could happen in the eventuality that the border doesn't open and that the Canadian teams then can't play games in the US? Have you had any discussions, for example, with the CPL regarding Canadian players? No. No, there have not been any of that uh, right now. Uh, maybe in the league office they discuss every scenario. Not maybe for sure they are discussing and 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 working of every single scenario uh, to have a plan for that. But right now it's it's not a scenario that from uh, that is much or uh, we discussed or we have been involved in discussions. And 
I think that's too far away. Um, nobody knows what happens next week. Nobody knows how the situation will be in two weeks and three weeks or four weeks. Um, I think uh, football should not, um, and, and especially we in this market, should not make us more important than necessary right now. There are bigger problems that have to be solved right now. And, and I think if the time is the right time, we will find solutions to go on with our competition and we will be prepared for every, every single scenario. Uh, we are not in Europe where, where it, they are running out of time and, and, and they don't know how to finish a competition. We are still in a, in a good situation to, to stay beside of all the other problems and to wait until we get the feeling that the curve flattened and we should all do what we have to do to, to take our faces and, and our social responsibility to, to help the community, the country, the states to, to, to address to people to do the right things, to flatten the curve. And if we can manage that, then, then we will find a solution for everything else. Yeah, Axel, on this, um, obviously, you like me are following probably very closely what's going on in um, on, on the league being possibly finished there or cancelled, no one knows, right? But, um, you know, in the Bundesliga, they have drawn up plans to maybe finish the season in a shortened way, maybe cancel the season, have, have those kind of plans in place. Do you have a sense that the same is, is going on with Major League Soccer? I know um, that the league is, is working on every single scenario and they are making it week by week, so they are following everything they are being aware of every single uh, development in North America. And I, I have to give huge respect and credit to the league for, for the work they are doing right now, how they are connected with arts and, 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 um, and try to collect every single information to, to get the best picture they can. This league, this league has, um, has an advantage, as I said, that we are not running out of time, like, for example, German Bundesliga where they now set up a scenario yesterday. And if that doesn't work, I don't think that they are able to play the full season. Um, and they're under that pressure um, to, to, to find now solutions because there are some clubs really uh, in danger to, to go bankrupt. Or the, the other thing, but the other thing we all have to keep in our mind is that it is also on the other side, it is much more difficult for MLS to, to manage all of that. Because if Germany finds a solution, that means more or less uh, uh, they have, or, no, if they know that Bayern Munich can play against Borussia Dortmund, they know also that, um, that Werder Bremen can play against Düsseldorf and Berlin can play against Leipzig. We don't know that right now because this league has to deal with a lot of states and in every single state the situation is different. They have to deal with two countries. So we all know about the situation in New York and this is totally different to the situation here in Vancouver. And, and maybe in a few weeks or months, and nobody knows that today, the situation here is different to, to, to the situation in New York in a different way. So, so they have to be aware of such, so many things that I think it's a really right thing not to come out with scenarios right now, uh, to, to, to wait, to be aware of that, to, to, to adapt to the situation. And, and then if the time is the right time to, to come out with a realistic plan. So that was some of the thoughts of Axel Schuster there as to what might lie ahead for the Whitecaps and the MLS season. And to talk about that and a lot more of what's been happening in the global shutdown of football, I'm delighted to say now we're joined by Gideon Hill. How, how are you doing tonight, Gideon? Doing good. Uh, 
you know, it's been a crazy past month here in the world, but I think things are downturning a little bit for, for a short period of time, but good to be on the show and, you know, talking to somebody about sports rather than a family, so it's good. <laughs> And before we go any further, I have to say massive congratulations, if people listening might not know this, but Gideon, who is my fellow commentator for the UBC Thunderbirds and TSS Rovers games, soccer-wise, also does hockey commentary, and he was named the PJHL Broadcaster of the Year. Congratulations, Gideon. Thank you. Big honour, and uh, started that, what, three years ago, whenever we started UBC, so August 2017, been with them, that's that was their first year, so I've been their one and only commentator, so it's good to, you know, get that award, and I've been wanting to get it since I came in the league, so it was nice to be rewarded by that, and it's kind of a, a bright spot, if you will, in all this. Yeah, it's a right now. <laughs> great reward as well for all the hard work that, that you put in, because I mean, that, sitting beside you, you put in so much research when you're when you're doing these games. I mean, it, it's fantastic. I think it's very well deserved. And if anyone doesn't know, the, the PJ, it's Pacific Junior. It's not the Pajama yeah. Hockey League. I thought he had possibly won for just calling games in his pajamas, but it turns out it's Pacific <laughs> Junior. And it's the Langley Trappers that, that you call for. And like, yeah. genuinely, in all, all seriousness, the, the work that you put in, it's fantastic. And I, I'm really, really pleased to see you rewarded like this. I appreciate it. And I, I know that the games at UBC, even though it may not be at the same sport, does, does help me having somebody with your calmness and your experience next to me. So I appreciate you helping me along the way as well. So that's good to have somebody like you there too. So. Thank you. Well, I mean, hopefully we'll be, we'll be back calling some games sooner rather than later we'll, we'll come to that a little bit in this part but I want to start off by, by basically talking MLS and an interesting development happened over the weekend Don Garber was amongst many of the, the league bigwigs from our, around North American sports, NFL NBA NHL, the baseball, NASCAR even pro golf, what was on a, a conference call with Donald Trump, and not a lot has been forthcoming from the call. Don Garber and MLS have said they don't want to to talk too much about what was discussed in the call. They're just leaving it to what the White House has revealed. And basically, all we sort of know just now is that Donald Trump is saying he wants to see open stadium events, ideally by August or September. He thinks that they can get people in stadiums in time for the NHL season starting. And, I mean, the way that the world is right now, the way that North America is just now, and especially some big pockets where there's a lot of concern in the, in the US, that just seems so far-fetched, Gideon. Yeah, and I think you have to take, you know, the political standpoint of, you know, being, I want to hate to say it, positive, but you can't realistically think that they're going to have what, 20 odd thousand fans for a Whitecaps game or in the States at a, a you know new stadium like DC United in, in Washington where there's been some outbreaks to have that many people there, you know, with, you know, people will recover in a couple of weeks, but that doesn't matter how many people they affect and how much of a, a downspin that can have. I saw a tweet from a TSN correspondent, Rick Westhead this week saying, you heard from NHL agent that the borders might not open until after Canadian Thanksgiving and there's no yeah. way you can have, you know, a season in, in, you know, a month or two, let alone for any sport. So uh, I, 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 I don't see as much as I, you know, love would love to see anything back, even if it's, you know, darts at this point. Um, I, I don't see that happening at all, even if it's closed doors. 
Well, the the other big thing with that as well is these are cross-country leagues, so it, it's so different from a lot of other sporting leagues around the world in that you've got two countries that, I mean, the way that things are looking, they're going in two different directions just now. They're having two different policies in place. Even in the States, though, you've got different policies in the States. Some states still aren't locking down. Some states are allowing, like, church mass gatherings and things like that. The California governor, he came out after that conference call, he was asked in his own conference call about it, and he said it, it's unlikely, and he's not anticipating NFL or any giant sporting events to be having that kind of spectators in his state anytime soon, or by August or September. So, I mean, when you've got a big governor from a big state like that saying that, it, it does seem like pie in the sky, and I know everyone is wanting to have some hope and something to cling on to, Don Garber still isn't ruling out a 34-game season. But at the same time, I think they need to be a little bit realistic. Yeah, um, I, I think coming to the California governor, you know, have, you have 18 post-sports teams in California. Yes, August is a long time away, but the other thing is, like, if you have Trump saying that he wants open stadiums by August, is there something we don't know about? A lockdown, you know, nationwide? Like, mm. is he going to make some drastic measures to try and make that happen? Like, is there some sort of bargaining agreement between him and the commissioners of all the leagues. That, that's something that you have to kind of ponder about why why he thinks he's giving such an unrealistic timeline. But if Don Garber thinks it's going to be 34 games, I think that's that's out of the question at this point. Like you asked me that a couple of weeks ago when this cancellation or the postponement of the season happened and it was looking okay and now it's just gone from bad to worse. So there's there's no way you can play a 34-game a season unless you have like Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday games, in, which is what you see in June and July with the Canadian Championship and U.S. Open Cup having that fixtures, and you know the quality, quality drops, the fatigue of the players, and the travel as well on MLS is substantial. So I, I honestly don't see that happening one bit. And something I, we talked about in last week's show with Zach, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on it as well now. I kind of asked Axel there if there had been any discussions that he knew about as to what might happen to the Canadian teams if, for example, the border didn't open, but say MLS got back going, even if MLS got back going with closed-door games. Obviously, that couldn't happen with, with people flying across the border. So, I mean, obviously, it's massive speculation, but... It could be that you have the Canadian Premier League maybe able to go a little bit, very limited season, just maybe a month or two. I mean, where would that leave the the Canadian MLS teams? And would you think it's a good idea then if, especially the Canadian players on those teams, were maybe distributed amongst the the eight CPL teams just to make sure that they're keeping fit and getting playing time? I think so, and I mean, you have to. If you do do that, you have to have a limit of how much those players play because you have guys that are already signed by these CPL teams that have been scouted for yeah. six months and they've been put in those teams. You don't want to have a guy like, say, Theo Bear come into Pacific and push out a guy like Blasco or Bustos who's been a big signing just to get minutes, right? So there's, I could see that happening for, for some players, but I don't think you can be throwing, you know, full-on Canadian internationals into CPL games and even just for a month or two just to stay fit and pushing other guys that are trying to become national team players out of the picture just to get some minutes in. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's so much that is unknown just now, and I think that is... I mean, it's part of the problem, it's part of the uncertainty, and folk, like I said, they do want something to, to kind of cling on to, and I think that is why some of the leagues are saying, 
look, we we might come back or we've, we're looking at this. Uh, talking to Steve on the phone during the week, he mentioned that he had read that Major League Baseball have said they will not return unless the Canadian and the American teams can come back. And you would kind of hope that all the leagues would say that. Yeah, I, the, the thing with that is that there's only one Canadian team where in this case there's you know three and we actually have our own league, a CPL league, whereas MLB doesn't have a Canadian league to fall back on so the Blue Jays are kind of stoked. Mm. But it's, again, like it's, you have to think that CPL will be the only thing working right now with, you know, if there's any MLS players that are Canadian that will go down to play for them. But other than that, I don't see any cross-border travel involved with games being played. It all have to be inside the country places that aren't, you know, obviously hotspots or places that don't have a lot of outbreak. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just MLS, it's hitting, obviously, it's all the leagues as well. And, I mean, going down to USL, two of the sides there, North Carolina and Memphis 901, they've laid staff off this week. And, I mean, you feel you're hearing it elsewhere in Europe over in, in England and stuff, but this feels like the first of what could be many clubs. The longer that this goes on, Clubs at USL level, even USL Championship level, never mind League One and League Two level, and we'll obviously come to League Two in a sec. But I mean, these clubs are going to be in serious financial peril. Yeah, and I've been watching the uh, the Sunderland uh, documentary Netflix, and just hearing about their cash flow and how minimal it is, and how frugal they have to be. Like, yeah, compare that to a, a USL team. Like, there's no way they can stay afloat without having relying on all those like. You know, not as many fans, obviously, as the championship or the League One gets, but you still need the revenue from the fans to pay, pay staff. And if you have no games, where is the money coming from? So that's definitely going to be a big issue, I think, not just for American lower league teams, but any you know league and that's below a top-tier team and across the globe. And I mean, another aspect that we haven't really touched on too much on this show is the, the financial aspect in general, because if a season gets cancelled altogether or the longer that this goes on, sponsors are going to say, well, we want our money back, or we're not going to make this payment. Like, the zone were requesting money back from the English leagues and the, the other European leagues that they've got the rights for this week because they had said, well, we're not showing the game, so we're not paying the money. They're still not refunding annual subscriptions that folk are paying for the same thing. So slight double standards there. But, I mean, broadcasters are going to do that as well. They're not going to pay for something that they're not able to show, sponsors are going to pull out. So the cash flow is suddenly going to start drying up at a lot of these clubs. And I know a lot of them, they're owned by millionaires, some of them's owned by billionaires. But it's going to be interesting to see how a lot of these teams handle this situation. We'll talk in the next part about how they've been handling it a little bit in England. But there are government handouts available in Canada and in the US. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of the North American teams maybe following the European League, furloughing staff and just letting the government pay wages for a while. Yeah, and I, I could, but I think one of the things that if you know any league is cancelled, they have a, obviously a financial back plan that they maybe wouldn't have planned to use in this sort of situation, but they're obviously not going to jump to conclusions to say the season's cancelled and they're not going to you know think about money-wise, which is one of the most important things in American sports. So. There's definitely a follow-up plan for, for any league, but you have to think that, you're right, there's no way they can be able to pay everybody in full for X amount of months until the next season starts, which we don't even know what would be. So there's a lot of different dominoes and a lot of different moving parts in this whole uh, situation. Yeah, and like from a Whitecaps point of view, 
you're going to have guys that signed a, a one-year deal, guys that are on loan at clubs are around the, the league as well, and teams aren't going to have made a decision on them. Who knows what's going to happen contract-wise with all these things? And it's, it's, it's fascinating in a way, in a kind of perverse way, it's kind of fascinating to see how all this is going to be dealt with. But I mean, somebody like Mark Panis coming in as the new Whitecaps CEO, you're not expecting, you've not planned. We were talking a little bit before we recorded, like none of this. You you can plan for all eventualities, even stoppages for various reasons. But something like this, it, it's it's new to everyone. Yeah, and not only you know would you consider this, but how fast it's happened, like from yeah. December to now, like it's just been what four or five months of just rapid outbreak, and it's. I, I think it's Mark Panis has come into you know a good situation in January and February, but. To have something like this happen and have to deal with it, I think he's done really, really good job of communicating and the, the COVID updates the Whitecaps have done, you know, at nine or five or however it is every day. Like, it's it's helpful. I think it brings in updates and it brings calming presence to some people with having that uh, transparency between, you know, the, the club and the fans and the rest of MLS to know what's going on. And I think if Mark Panis wasn't around, you know, I don't think there would be much communication compared to last year, years before, between the club and the, the fans with what, you know, what's said, what's going to happen, updates, that kind of thing. Is Mark Pennis has been such a, a calming presence in my mind, what he's said and what he's, his opinions on different matters as well, being on Twitter, which is just refreshing to see. Yeah, I think we said this last week as well on the show, the, the Whitecaps, the way that they've dealt with everything just now, I mean, full kudos to them that they're doing a fantastic job. Taking this to a personal level now, of course, USL League 2, where the commentators for, for TSS Rovers, there's not going to be, at least in the Pacific Northwest, there's not going to be a USL League 2 season. The league has not cancelled its games yet, but last week, Lane United said that they weren't going to operate this year. That's then had a domino effect. The clubs all met. They came to a consensus. It was unanimous. They said, look... It's cross-border travel. We don't want to put our players at risk. We don't want to put our fans at risk. USL have said, look, if teams don't want to play, we totally understand. But the whole Pacific Division now is not going ahead. There's no USL League Two season for TSS Rovers. And it's a blow, but ultimately you have to say it is the right decision. 100%. And, you know, talking to to Will Cromack a lot, week or so just texting a couple of quick things and I, I said it's disappointed but I said you know it's for the best and he agreed and I mean that's that's what you want to see you want to have the again the transparency between coaching staff and managers and and you know broadcasters I guess and you want to have agreement and if you say it's unanimous obviously there wasn't any if ands or buts about it players and and you know staff safety comes first it's disappointing for sure I know we were looking forward to, to calling the season but I think with all the different components taken in with travel and going across with, you know, six, seven people in the car, how much that can break social distancing rules and whatnot. So that's, there's just a whole different side of it. But I, I just don't think it'll be only the Northwest. I think it'll be the whole league that will be canceled pretty quick here. But there is a, a certain dynamic of playing with closed doors if you're looking to keep the season going because there are thousands of fans of games. There is in some markets, but it's not, you know, like a, USL or MLS type attendance league so there could be some kind of way to look at it that way. Yeah possibly and I mean we talked about the conference call to to kick this segment off and 
NCAA weren't on the call, which was kind of interesting. But yeah, there's going to be some tough decisions ahead for USL League Two, all the leagues, and we'll we'll just have to kind of see how this plays out. But that is it for this part of the show. We're going to be back in part two, looking at how the latest shutdown has affected the teams in Europe. And we'll be back with that after this. Hi, I'm Mark Dos Santos, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. And so I wake up, get out my bed and gaze about. There's something not right, I feel it, mate, it's stranger now. I put my sneaks on before I'm good to pace about But where the place my hat that holds the power that'll shake the ground Starting to panic, moving erratic, lacking the hatage I'm looking dramatic, I'm under the bed, raiding it rapid Nothing to see, now I pace about frantic Can't find it, straight to the attic, not there Could it be, maybe be magic Still pacing, walking, manic, where they'll leave it Gone, vanish Pow, 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 Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show. That was Scotland's finest rapper, Mad Hat McGore, with Feel the Panic. And I didn't play that because of the coronavirus. You might have thought that was what I was talking about, but no, that song, Feel the Panic, was about Mad Hat losing his magic hat. The hat that gives him his superpowers to rap, and he had to find out who had taken it. And you know who else had a magic hat? Jay Nolly. Nolly's a, a cult hero amongst the Whitecaps fan base that go back to the, the pre-MLS days. Only had a couple of seasons in MLS with the Whitecaps. Not fully utilised before moving on to Real Salt Lake. But during the USL days, he was just such a, a cult figure at the club. There was a fantastic incident at Swan Guard where during play a baby ran on the pitch and he actually ran, grabbed the baby, took it to the sidelines while the game was going on and the fans are chanting, You'll never beat Jay Nolly. There was a video of that on YouTube which doesn't seem to exist anymore. I was looking for it the other day. But fantastic cult hero. The kind of guy you could say that would maybe feature on a Mount Rushmore of Whitecaps players. And... Before we, we have a look at how the, the shutdown is affecting the leagues across Europe, I want to have a little bit of fun. The MLS website, they were, have been running something this week, looking at every team's Mount Rushmore. Basically, what four players would you put on a Mount Rushmore statue for your team? And there's a couple of ways I feel that you can look at this. One is you could look at players that have made a kind of big impact to the team over the, the years and on the pitch what, what they've meant to the team or you could look at it as cult heroes maybe players that have stood out for various reasons or maybe they've not been that good but the fans have taken them under their wings as well so we're going to look at both of those things just now so the official MLS selection was Jay Demerit, YP Lee, Russell Tybert and Alfonso Davies and it got a little bit of debate going on Twitter and social media uh, we thought we'd have a little chat about it in the show, and then we'll throw it out to our listeners to, to see what their thoughts are on it. But we'll we'll do two different ones. We'll do ones for 
our four Mount Rushmore players for contributions on the pitch. And then we'll do our four kind of maybe cult hero ones as well. I mean, first thing to ask you though, Gideon, is what, what did you think of this election? Did did you agree with those four or would you have come up with a different four? I I think the merit, uh, Tybert and Davies were, were I think Davies was interchangeable, but I, I, Lee, I think he was what, with the Whitecaps for two years. It's yeah. hard to throw, you know, I mean, to be fair, he had a Champions League experience and whatnot coming over, but I, if there was a player that I would take out, it would be likely nothing against him, but just in my opinion. I mean, the th- four players I went for, if we're looking at contributions on the pitch, Camilo, who's obviously a little bit of persona non gratis, and that might be why he did not make that, that final four. I went for Alfonso Davies, just because the skill that he brought and also the big transfer fee that he brought. So, I mean, that was a big contribution. Russell Tiber, I mean, you can't rule out a guy that's played every single season of the decade with, with the team. So, I mean, for me, that was my three that I thought were cinches. Demerit, I didn't even put him when we did our our team of the decade. I didn't have him as one of the, the two centre-backs. I know he was the first signing, but I don't think he made that great a contribution. And YP Lee as well. I mean, when I my selection for the team of the decade was Stephen Bateshear at right-back. But my fourth player, I found it a little bit tricky. I thought possibly Pedro Morales, because he did have a couple of good seasons. And then Eric Hasley as well, just for his contribution. Then I thought, would Eric Hasley maybe be in the, the kind of cult one? So I've put him in there, and I'm actually going to maybe controversially go for Pedro Morales. What, what would your four be for contributions on the pitch? Uh, I have uh, Kendall Waston. He uh, was with the club for a few years. Yeah. And for a bit, he uh, scored a few goals. I think mean, I look at that honestly with center back contribution. There was a few times where his head may have gone a little bit sideways and he would have gotten a couple cards. But uh, that way, I, I think I look at his production uh, offensively in a few games. Defensively, Ivan Morales, uh, he was you know pretty fluent, influential right off the hop when he came in the MLS. Obviously, had a rocky last couple of years. Uh, Kenny Miller. And Matias Lava as well, who I thought was a mainstay in the Whitecaps midfield for a few years as well. Yeah, and interestingly, this week when the the Whitecaps tweeted out uh, a video of, of Lava scoring one of his goals as well, Lava tweeted that he misses the the Whitecaps. Saw that, yeah, yeah. I don't know how much you can make of that, but I think he just player yeah. loves club and club loves the player, and it's just watching the game back. It's just incredible to see him. He scored what three goals in a hundred and something appearances. Yeah. I know, it's, you get weird situations like that. It's like that time that Pamadou Ka got the two goals down in Seattle. It's weird that you've players, and like Russell Tiber, he had his... Yeah. yeah. It's like, just uh, they don't score much, and then they score, and then it's a couple, and they have big contributions. Yeah, odd, very odd. My cult hero four. Now, this, this one I had a lot of fun with, and again, I kind of went a little bit to and, and fro with it, but I've gone for Jay Nolly, and we've mentioned him at the start of the show there. For me, I know he only played the one season, he only played half a season, and I'm maybe kind of basing it, because I said to you when we do this, we'll just do MLS players. And I'm maybe basing this more on his USL experience that he had with the Whitecaps, but 
he he was kind of a, a cult figure for the Southsiders when we first came to MLS. Eric Hasley I'm putting in as a cult hero Mount Rushmore just because first goal, first designated player, the whole jersey incident that you had, the wonder goal in Seattle. I mean, you, you had, you've got to have him somewhere in there. And then Jordan Harvey, Mr. Dependable, spent so much years of the, the past decade with the Whitecaps, even has a tattoo of BC Place on him. And it's like, there's not many fans are going to have something like that, never mind a player. So obviously the, the team means a lot to him. And then for my fourth one, I went with Andy O'Brien. And I guess, again, I kind of went with a fan connection for that because I, Curva Collective in particular really loved Andy O'Brien and he was a great guy to be around. So he was a little bit of a cult hero. That might be a bit of a controversial one, but who, who would your four cult heroes be on a Mount Rushmore? Uh, I have Hasley as well. I agree with you. First DP, first uh, goal in MLS history, two in the day. Kind of similar to Tichero, and I think he took his shirt off and got the red, as we mentioned. So, oh, um, amazing. Yeah, Harvey, um, Ty Burch, I think, is a cult hero. Just yeah. you know, the time of the club. And then I, this one might ruffle a few feathers. I have Ostead. I was going to put Joe Cannon. I just think they have the, cell setters have the boom for when they when he had the free kick, or the goal kicks, rather, so they had that. But I, I, I have Ostead in there. Yeah, I, I thought of Ostead instead of Nolly. And I'm probably just really being swayed just because I, I first came over here and when I first started watching the White Cats in 2008, Jay Nolly was like the cult figure and always enjoyed talking to him over the years. And I think that kind of swayed me more than Ousted. But I think that's a good shout, Ousted, for his contribution to the club. And he, he had a couple of seasons where his clean sheets record was fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, yeah, he, he does deserve to, to be there as well. It's a little bit of fun. Let us know if you think we're crazy, who you would have in your Mount Rushmore for the Whitecaps for contributions and a cult hero Mount Rushmore as well for the Whitecaps. I haven't had a, a look to see who some of the ones are on the other teams, but I'll look at that this week as well. But it was a, it was a fun section. I kind of enjoyed it. And it, it's nice just to get all the fans just chatting about that and just kind of reminiscing of, of days of past. And of course, there isn't any football to talk about just now. So let's get back to the the kind of lockdown, the shutdown of football across the globe. And we're going to turn our attentions internationally now. FIFA, they expanded the age limit for the Olympics this week to 24 because obviously the Olympics has been pushed back a year. The qualification has been pushed back. So that means no player that was going to be eligible for the Olympics this year is going to miss out. It's been raised from 23 to 24. Absolutely right decision there, Gideon. Yeah, and I think you can kind of compare this to junior hockey leagues in Canada where they have the age limits for players. I, I don't think they're going to extend that this year because it would have to be league-wide, but I think doing that for the Olympics, considering how kind of much they left it to make the decision to the end, saying, oh, you know, let's let the athletes train kind of thing. I think that players that made it to the Olympics, and uh, I think it was New Zealand, actually, or Australia, that were the ones that were kind of had the guys that were on the edge of not being eligible next year, so I'm glad they pushed it back. It makes it for a better Olympics, and you see those guys that really earned it and grinded out for qualifying to make it and play in the Olympics, which is a dream for so many. Absolutely, and I mean, hopefully we'll, we'll see Canada there for men and women, but we've still got to find out about the men. Now, CONCACAF, they've cancelled the Nations League in Texas in June. That was going to feature the US, Mexico, Costa Rica and Honduras. 
The Gold Cup qualification in the same month, Canada automatically through to that. And the Caribbean Club Championship in May has been cancelled. So all these things are going to have a kind of snowballing effect. And at some point, it's going to be, where do you find the time to kind of play all these competitions? Yeah, and I, I was thinking about that today as well. So if you have all these, you know, leagues that are postponed and you have an international tournament somehow happening, like how do you have players that are fit? How do you have the quality to be able to play those? So I'm glad they postponed them, I think. You know, they didn't really leave it too late, but I think they made the right decision. But, yeah, you have, what, next year you have the Copa America, the Euros, I think as well, the Gold Cup's supposed to be next yeah. year. So it's it, it's going to be tough. I think they're going to have to do something with the World Cup. I think it's supposed to be in the December anyways, if I'm not mistaken, because of the, the heat in Qatar. But, yeah. And it's going to be, for footballing fans, it's going to be a, a busy summer, but I think it's going to be tough for the players to kind of have that season of knowing what not, not what's going to happen with this whole COVID thing. But, to have to go just season, maybe that's broken up a little bit, and then play a, an international to go right back into the season, then a World Cup. So it's it's challenging, but I think for us as spectators and you know pundits, it's fun to watch. Yeah, if they decide though that they want all these competitions to go ahead, it might even impact what happens with Concacaf World Cup qualifying as well. Will they have this alternative route? Will they just have the hex? Will they just decide to have a, a straight knockout competition? A lot of questions there that would be interesting to, to sit down with Victor Montagliani and, and chat about. But, the, I mean, the governing bodies around the world, they're in a bit of a tough decision. We talked last week that it kind of felt like UEFA were washing their hands of things a little bit. Things starting to come to a head now in Europe because UEFA continuing their threats to countries this week that... If they call their seasons early, then there's a good chance that they'll say that their teams can't play in the Champions League and the Europa League. They want leagues to 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 try their best to not rush into decision to, to cancel things. In saying that, their president has said that it's going to be hard to finish seasons if there was no football by, the say, the end of July because he doesn't really want things going into August or September. UEFA's postponed all international matches that were scheduled in June. That includes Scotland's already postponed chance to, to qualify for the Euros and the Nations League. Some leagues started to call the championships, and Belgium did that this week. They they said the Juliper League was finished. They crowned Club Bruges champions. They were 15 points clear. UEFA, not happy about that at all, has basically threatened them again with not being in European competition. And today it looks like Belgium's kind of deferred that decision for a month. So they're saying the league hasn't been called and we're, we're going to wait and see if we can finish it and we're not making that decision now. So a lot of threat. And for me, and I know it opens them up to legal action, but there has to be some guidance and you can't just say, no, we need to wait, we need to wait, we need to wait. Yeah, and I think there needs to be a quick, pretty quick decision here because you're getting to the end of the season. You know, there's only nine games left in the Prem, which the season would have been finishing in May. So if you have the season finishing in July, you have the whole weather effect. But I think that's what you start seeing with, with different leagues is you look at the numbers of, you know, how so Celtics, for example, is 30 points clear with eight games to play. Yeah. And then the second place team is one game ahead. And then Liverpool, obviously, nine games to play, 25-point difference. Man City is the one game ahead. So you have to think, you know, if they were to do that for one league, they'd have to do it and cancel it for all the teams. But I think UEFA really needs to to kind of grasp onto these leagues and guide them as well as, you know, make a decision that consensus where all the team, all the leagues are actually agreeing and you're not calling it unfairly, but 
you're keeping everyone's safety and health in mind. Well, Scottish officials were liaising with English officials to try and have a unified UK standpoint, but that hasn't happened. The, the Scottish League were thinking of following in Belgium's footsteps and, and calling the league crowning Celtic champions, relegating hearts. And the reason that they want to do that is clubs throughout the four divisions, they're struggling financially. So if they say, well, that's the league over, they can distribute the prize money and the, the cash that they've got. But now, again, fast moving, things are changing almost daily. They're now having a meeting on Tuesday and it looks like they're going to defer that decision as well because Rangers and Hearts have both threatened legal action. And sadly, whatever decisions the leagues make, it could get bogged down in court and there's no way that this is going to please everybody. And I, it's just a mess and I, I don't see any way of getting round it unless they say no other football starts until we finish the current seasons. And that could go on into next year. And then you're having shortened seasons or revamped seasons. And oh, it's it's a mess. And I genuinely cannot see any way that leagues can get out of this that's going to please everyone and stave off any legal action. No, you know, as a player, you know, playing for one of these leagues, say Celtic, yes, you're clear, but you also want to still play out your season and have that, you know, you don't want to just sit and, you know, accept the trophy as much as you'd like the trophy, but you don't want to play behind closed doors. You don't want to play and just end the season. So there's a lot of different moving parts, and I think you can't get out of this unscathed. There's going to be repercussions, serious repercussions through different leagues and all of UEFA, and it'll have a Doppler or a domino effect into the Euros next year. Yeah. There's fitness. I just, it's, yeah, I, I honestly, if it's going to be leagues going into next year, I see the Euros being postponed in the World Cup, and it's just, yeah, it's all... All ch- everything's going to change, I think, in the next few months here in regards to things falling down and, and changing. I mean, we just don't know how long this is going to go on and some countries are maybe going to be able to, to get back into action sooner rather than later. But, I mean, financially, we talked about it there in part one, clubs are taking a massive hit. Premier teams, Newcastle, Norwich, Tottenham, they were the first ones this week to furlough staff. And for me, they were shockingly joined by the seventh richest club in the world. I know you're a a Liverpool supporter. They said on Saturday that they were furloughing their staff as well. And I don't think it's right. They're taking advantage of government rules that are put in place to try and help small businesses to, to keep their staff and to keep afloat. These are football clubs that are owned by millionaires and in some cases billionaires. And... They're they're using government handouts and government subsidies that could be put to far, far better use right now. And when you've got a team like Liverpool, seventh richest club in the world, saying, yeah, we can't afford to, to pay our, our non-playing staff, I just think it's a terrible example to set. Yeah, and I, you know, as you as mentioned, I heard the whole time that I am at Irks, um, mm-hmm. you know, frugal, I think it's like selfish, honestly, and you have all that money that could you know, go to different things if this was to happen again and say, you know, next year and the fall even, you're going to have to have money to save up to, to spend on different things for the government to use. And to have, you know, the government use that kind of thing is is not right. And I think the club, the, the, the owners and multi-millionaires and billionaires that you mentioned are, you know, I don't want to say it's cheaping out and you have, if they're able to spend 60, 70 million on a player, like why, yeah. why not shell out a few extra million for, for staff who have given their all this year and you know, on a winning season as well for Liverpool, let alone. So, interesting. 
And I mean, you've got, again, I'll use Scotland as an example. You've got lower league clubs in Scotland who are refusing to to furlough their staff. They're trying to make, like they're in a worse state than the the big money clubs and they're trying to pay their, their staff. East Fife, for example, they've got a GoFundMe. They're playing games on their East Fife TV on a Saturday and fans are, instead of paying their admission money that they would have paid, they're donating what the admission would have been and what they would spend in the pub and on programmes and pies and they're raising a lot of money. Wraith Rovers fans raised 40000 Wraith Rovers are our rivals and they've been donating money to our GoFundMe and stuff as well. And you're seeing the small clubs trying to do everything they can to look after their staff. And then you've got the big teams that don't. And you touched on that there. Like some obscene transfer fees, never mind salaries. And you have to wonder what the salary market's going to look like and the transfer market's going to look like after this. Are teams going to be willing to to go and spend £60 million when they've been pleading poverty a couple of months earlier? I Yeah, again, like I don't know... You don't know what's going to happen with the transfer window. I don't think you can honestly have one with players contracts. You have to wait another year. Like there's another, you know, I hate to say it again, but domino effect. And if you're you're saying you can't pay your staff now, like for example, Liverpool, Tottenham, and then you go and shell out, you know, 90 million for a defender or, you know, a winger in the summer, like how bad does that look on your team? So yeah. I think if they're going to have an agreement to have the government pay the staff, you're going to have to wait to sign a player or don't have a transfer window to just avoid that whole awkwardness of, oh, hey, we can't pay our staff, but we're spending millions on, you know, a big-name player that could be helping the team. And the players as well, they've been asked in the in the Premier League to take a 30% pay cut. The, the PFA have come out and said that the players have talked about it and they don't think that's the best route. Not that they're wanting the money, but they say... If you if we take a pay cut, the government is not getting the taxes on our salary, so then that's not going to essential services. And what they want to do is they want to be paid full pay, pay their tax on it, and then donate a chunk of their salaries to help the actual NHS, not help the owners. And I think that's fantastic. And Wayne Rooney, I'm praising him again for his column in the Sunday Times or the Sunday Telegraph, I can't remember what one he writes for, but... I mean, he wrote another great piece today where he was saying that footballers are being made scapegoats. Like, what about TV folk and film folk and stuff like that? And he said, we want to... He said, I'm comfortable. I can take a pay cut. But not everyone is in that position. And he said he'd rather donate that 30% straight to the NHS and straight to the nurses and the doctors to make sure that it goes to people that need it. And, I mean, when you hear things like that, that's fantastic. It's heartwarming, I think, in a time like this. Yeah. You want big guys, you know, big name players to help out and, and take a pay cut, but if they're willing to do it as a team and unite and do it rather than having the government, you know, have, get their money, which we know that some money hasn't handled well in Europe, I think you could see that happening with the players unified and being, have a sense of community and then therefore maybe donating even more money than individual players forfeiting money themselves. And I mean, we're talking about. When is the game going to return? I know it's not the main priority, but as we say every week, we're a football show, so we're we're here to talk about football and try and take your mind off everything else that's in the news. But once things get back to normal, once the game is back on TV, once the game is back and stadiums are open, people's lives have changed. People are losing a lot of money here. People are not able to, to afford their bare necessities just now. And it could be a case as well 
and I had a chat with, with someone on Twitter about this yesterday, people are starting to, to reevaluate their priorities in life. And you might find that there's a lot of supporters that either can't afford to go to games or can't afford the zone and streaming services or just choose that they want to spend their money now on something different. And that could also be a, a massive change in the landscape for sport here. Yeah, and I think you have to think about that. Like, if, you know, say the, the players resume with no fans, how else are they going to make your money? Then I think you have, like, stream services like the zone picking up doing pay-per-view. And what does that mean for sports at TSN? They'll lose jobs there. They'll have to pick up some sort of games to, to have not just replays and rewinds because nobody's going to want to watch that all day. So there's there's definitely different ways to look at it. And I think having you know people have to set their priorities, I think you're going to have to see TV stations and different things looking at either you know making it available for free and have it as a for now just for a temporary basis, or you know have some sort of cheaper plan to help out so people have that accessibility so you have money come in because if you don't you're that's a lot of revenue gone for big teams in the u.s and as well as canada absolutely thank you so much for joining us for these two parts gideon just before we go let everyone know where they can find you online find me at underscore gideon hill on twitter that's fantastic lovely speaking to you as always and we'll chat again soon cheers gideon thanks so much to gideon for joining us there we'll have him back on the show soon And again, huge congratulations to him for winning the PGHL Broadcaster of the Year. Fantastic achievement. He's a great commentator. As we chatted about in part one, really disappointed not to be calling the TSS Rovers games with him this year. And hopefully, even before that, up at UBC, calling matches in the fall. Fingers crossed, anyway. But now, it's time for part four of our episodic weekly football serial, It's Tough. For the Son of a Soccer Star by Edwin Dale. Talented young footballer Dick Denby was on the verge of achieving his dreams, signing an amateur contract with the local Bracktown United Football Club after managing to blag his way into a trial and impressing manager Joe Danvers. Bracktown's meddling trainer Fred Bagley had tried to scupper the deal after revealing to Danvers that Denby was in fact the son of a former Bracktown United player who'd mysteriously left the club and retired after being embroiled in a scandal where he was accused of stealing from his fellow teammates. Danvers decided to give Denby a chance, much to the chagrin of Bagley. But Dick managed to get his contract and he was not only out to impress Denvers, making a name for himself at Bracktown, but he also wanted to clear his father's name in the process. Will he do it, or what lies ahead? The following Saturday, Dick Denby wore the blue and red of Bracktown United for the first time. It was against one of the crack teams in the Mid-Counties League, and was always a tough match for the Bracktown reserves. But this time they notched a handsome victory by three goals to nil, and everyone agreed that this unexpected win was mostly due to United's new amateur left-winger, young Dick Denby. After a nervous start, he played like an experienced star. Time after time, he split open the opposition's defence with lightning runs up the left wing. He mesmerised the right-back with his dazzling footwork and body swerves, and kept his inside forward supplied with a stream of uncannily accurate passes. Dick had a hand in all three goals, and the fans on the terraces soon realised that the young left-winger was a player of class, 
with a very promising future. After the march, Dick Denby hurried home to the shop. His father was there alone, tidying up after a busy day. We won, Dad, cried Dick excitedly. And guess what I've heard? The club is thinking of moving Andy Masters over to the right wing, and that will mean there'll be a vacancy on the left. You think you'll be asked to take the vacancy, eh, Dick? His father put in with a smile. Well, I'm proud of you, son. I had customers in here on their way back from the match who told me that if United don't put you in the league side next week, then Bracton don't deserve to win promotion to the first division. Then suddenly his face grew grave. Listen, Dick, he said quietly. Now that you've joined United, I've got something to tell you. Something I've kept from you. I don't like letting you know this, and I don't think you'll like hearing it, but I feel I must tell you now. It's all right, Dad, Dick said quickly. If it's about you and the United, I already know. You mean, you know the real reason why I left the club and packed up football? Asked his father. Yes, answered Dick. Or rather, I heard how you got the blame for something I'm sure you didn't do. I know you're not a cheap thief. You're right, son, his father put in quickly. Someone framed me. Why? I don't know. But I took the blame and left the United sooner than allow the club's name and reputation to be damaged. Tell me, said Dick, after a brief pause, what sort of man was Fred Bagley in his playing days? No pal of mine, son. He was a bad-tempered chap, answered his father fiercely. He was always causing trouble for other people, and made himself very unpopular. As a matter of fact, he didn't get his regular first-team place until I left the United. He's a dangerous character, Dick, and I wouldn't trust him an inch. But why Why do you ask? Oh, just curious, Dick shrugged and said no more. But his thoughts were racing excitedly. I'm going to watch Bagley very closely, Dick muttered silently to himself. The first few days of the following week were the best in all of Dick's young life. He trained every day at the United's ground, and soon discovered that the rest of the players were a grand bunch of chaps. They made him feel at home immediately. It's really terrific, Dad, Dick said enthusiastically to his father when he returned from his first day's training. I only wish you could come along to watch me. I'm sure you could teach me plenty of tricks and tips. That would improve my play no end. That night, Dick hit on a grand idea. At least he thought it was. Next to soccer, his favourite pastime was photography and one of his proudest possessions was a cine camera. The next day, Dick took his camera with him to the United's ground and instructed a young member of the ground staff on how to use it. Then, in that morning's practice game, a number of shots were taken of Dick as he dribbled, tackled and passed. Dick developed the film that same evening and flashed it up on a screen for his father to see. As the old soccer star watched the film, he criticised Dick's playing technique, offering advice as different points cropped up. The same thing happened the next night, with more shots taken of Dick during that day's training. Dick found his father's tips invaluable, and his play improved to such a marked extent that even trainer Bob Warner remarked on it. Keep it up, lad, he said, and you'll soon be a professional on the first team. Why, the more I see you, the more you remind me of your old dad. But Dick's undoubted progress and his popularity did not please Fred Bagley. He seemed to take a delight in making himself particularly unpresent to the new lad. Among the senior players, however, Fred Bagley found no support, and when he mentioned the reason why Dick's father was thrown out of the United, 
which he did as often as he could. He was told to shut up and to live in the present, not in the past. You can't condemn young Dick because of something his father is supposed to have done, exclaimed Andy Masters. So give the lad a chance. But on the Wednesday, something happened that altered everything for Dick Denby. After training was over, the players filed off the pitch to get bathed and changed, all except Dick. He stayed out in the field with half a dozen footballs, practising corner kicks. It was about twenty minutes later when Dick finally gathered up the balls and made his way through the tunnel towards the dressing room. The door was half open, and as he approached, he heard the voices of his teammates raised in anger. Dick paused to listen. My wristwatch has gone, cried one of the players. Hey, somebody's pinched my wallet, shouted another. Other voices came clearly to Dick, all protesting that money and valuables had been stolen. Dick was about to push open the door when suddenly he heard the voice of Fred Bagley raised above the others. Well, what can you expect, he was saying. Haven't I warned you often enough that it was asking for trouble to have another Denby in the United? I told you why his father got kicked out, just for the same sort of thieving as this. I thought this might happen. That's why I saw to it that young Denby's application for a trial with the United wasn't answered. Now perhaps you'll believe me. Those Denbys are all alike. Outside the dressing room, Dick was speechless with anger. He was on the point of bursting into the room and hotly protesting his innocence. Then he realised that that would be useless. He must wait until he could prove that he had nothing to do with the thefts. Better still, he must catch the thief. He was being framed, just as his father had been framed all those years ago. But by whom? Dick could make a wild guess, but he needed proof. And that wouldn't be easy to find. But he was determined to hunt down the man responsible and clear both his name and his father's. It's a trying time for Dick Denby. Will all his dreams be shattered? Or can he prove his innocence and his father's innocence at the same time as well? If he can, can he make the breakthrough to the Brackton United first team and be the player his father always wanted to be and could have been? Find out next week in the exciting final instalment of It's Tough for the Son of a Soccer Star by Edwin Dale. Exciting stuff there. What's going to happen in the last part? We'll bring you that final part in next week's AFT and Soccer Show. This is our drama serialisation of a story that first appeared in the 1959 Roy of the Rovers annual. And tune in next week for the exciting conclusion. And we'll be back with more excitement, and in particular, a chat with Whitecaps head coach Mark DeSantos about just what has shaped him to be the coach that he is today. And we'll be back with that after this. Hello, I'm Nick Datsvich. You're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. I open the curtains wide. The sun caught your face, made you light up the bedroom. Feeling all soft inside. Smile with a beautiful smile. Say things.
Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show. That was Blossoms Falling by English band Uberman from 1999, a single taken from their debut album, The Magic Treehouse. And see, it's not all just punk and shouting and, and angry Scottish rap that we play in this show. Yes, it mostly is that stuff, and yes... There's going to be some more of that later in the show, but sometimes we like to play some nice, mellow music just to kind of uplift your spirits, and that was certainly one of those songs. Mentioned on last week's show, I've been kind of using this time to to undertake a number of different little projects, and one of them is to sort through my CD single collection that I brought over from the UK in 2007, and most of them have just kind of sat in a box in a cupboard or on my shelves and not kind of really revisited them. So I've been doing that over the last couple of weeks. That was a a band that had a couple of singles by and just a a lovely feel-good song. And something that I have also enjoyed over the last couple of weeks is getting out with my dog Penny, walking around the neighbourhood and just enjoying seeing all the cherry blossoms and the the blossoms falling on me as I, I walk around East Van. And as I also mentioned on last week's show, another aspect of this that I've been trying to enjoy and get the most out of is getting this extra time to to do some of the interviews and do some sort of more in-depth interviews that I've been wanting to do for a while. Now last week's show I played you part one of a a chat I had with Whitecaps head coach Mark DeSantos just talking about the current crisis and how it might make the Whitecaps in a a better position but during that interview as well I I wanted to kind of delve into something I've wanted to do with him for a while, which is kind of like pick his brains on what his his football influences are in the coaching world and just where he draws his inspirations from and what has kind of shaped him as a head coach. So we're going to bring you that part of the interview just now. Some really interesting stuff in there, a lot of raw stuff as well from Mark. So let's hear what he had to say. must be weird really having this amount of free time on on your hands because I mean we've spoke before about how many games of football you would watch in a week and I mean I I guess you talked about having the routine which is good but it it must feel weird because also I mean you haven't got your family around but when your family are back you're not used to spending as much time with your family as well so that's going to be a little bit weird. Yeah no and they're used to me being away so it's going to be weird for them to see me every time home. But I think it's important. It allows to put so many things in perspective and, and evaluate so many things in life. So this moment that we stop and we think and we wait it, it is an important moment. Um, the thing that is weird for me is I'm very used to, to focus on what's next, you know, uh, our red and our work. After the LA Galaxy game was totally on, we're home against Colorado Rapids, and our guys were already mindset and all ready to go to war. And and suddenly, in our heads, we were always thinking and talking Colorado, what they do defensively and offensively. And suddenly, that stops. And I've been caught in weeks or uh, in days of I don't know who's our next opponent, and I don't know what's next, and that something weird for me right now. We've spoke a lot before about some of the coaches that 
that have influenced you in the past, and I'll come to them in a sec, but first thing to ask you, like if, if right now, if you could be quarantined with one other football head coach so you could pick their brains and just talk about experiences, who would you pick? Jurgen Klopp, by far. Ah, he he's a guy, like I, I'm not a fan of Liverpool, but he's just a guy that just seems to know how to motivate players, how to deal with media, how to just do everything. There's two coaches, to be honest, that I'd love to. If I could have breakfast all morning with one and then dinner with the other in a day, I would do that. It's Klopp and Mauricio Sadi. And for different reasons, you know, I think Klopp brings a lot of noise in his football. He wants the opponent to have the ball so he can win it and then with the the mentality of attacking right away. It's go, go, go. It's aggressive, and he lives that on the sideline, too. Uh, Daddy, I think it's incredible how we went from working in a shoe shop from nothing uh, to coaching amateur football in, in the fifth or sixth division of Italy and moving up the ranks that brought him to Napoli, Chelsea, and then Juve, I think it's incredible. So uh, th- those are those are the two coaches I would say in the last four years or three years that have really impacted my way of thinking football. And lately, even a coach in South America, Portuguese coach, uh, his name is Jorge Jesus. He coaches Flamengo right now. That won the Libertadores Cup. He's had a lot of influence by watching his teams and watching some dynamics in his teams. But I would tell you that from day one, when I started coaching the reserve team of Montreal Impact until today, um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of coaches that have made my way of thinking football grow. Yeah, I was looking at some of your older interviews, and you've kind of you've referenced like Jupp Hinkes and Pep Guardiola and. Marcella Bielsa as well, I read a thing where you said that if you had no budgetary restrictions, the way that he played football with Chile would be how you would love to your teams to play. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of uh, things in Bielsa that are do or die, you know. It's, uh, he gives courage to the players, it's not being afraid, it's when you don't have the ball, you want to get you want to get it right away, um, and that side of, of BL, especially when when he coached the national team of Chile, was 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 impressive. But again, when I look back, uh, uh, when I started to, to motivate myself to become a coach, and today, I'm not gonna say that it's only one or two coaches that that have inspired me. Uh, Football is evolving, and you see coaches and little things. If you have a clear idea of how you want to play, there's little things from different teams and different coaches that you're going to have to get. I'll give you an example. For me, I always divide the game in, into, I would say, five parts. There's the, the moment you have the ball that I call defensive, or that you don't have the ball, I call it defensive organization. Then the moment that you win the ball. Uh, so this is the moment from defense to offense. The moment where you have the ball, offensive organization,
position in the moment where you lose it. So you go from offense to defense. Then the fifth and the big moments are set play situations that are that are crucial and we work we work a lot on it. If you look at our team example defending wide free kicks, nobody defends an MLS wide free kicks like we do. Where we defend deep and we defend with a line that attacks the ball in front and you could go through games and look at it. Uh, if you look at the goal we score against uh, against the Galaxy in LA, uh, just go look how we defended the, the throw-in. Uh, it was a throw-in against us and look at the numbers that we have around the ball uh, to win the ball back and then it originates the goal. So set plays is crucial. It's an incredible moment. But I'll give you an example that when I think about defensive organization, I have a lot of inspiration from Diego Simeon and what he does with uh, Atletico when they don't have the ball. But then it's not the full concept of football that I want. Uh, then there's the moment where you win the ball and you can decide to be a team that if you win it, you want to keep it to unbalance the opponent. Or if you win it, you want to attack the space right right behind the opponent right away, like Klopp and Liverpool or Dortmund uh, did very well with it. So it's a lot of a mix that brings me to to different coaches that have uh, opened my eyes to, to things in the world of soccer. And I don't know if you saw this week, but The Athletic, they put together a, a combined USL-NASL team of the decade and you were named the, the head coach of the decade for NASL USL. I know you're not somebody that like takes like individual plaudits, but when when you hear something like that and see someone recognise you like that, I mean, what does that make you feel? No, to be honest with you, I I, I, I saw it, and I was very uh, uh, honoured, very honoured. Uh, there's. I, I never like to talk, think about individual, but for sure that when you're recognized like that, it's very touching because you think about all the sacrifices. You know, people, a lot of people see the coach when they watch a game on TSN and I'm on TV, and that's the superficial part that they see. What they don't see is everything that is took for the coach to get there and and when you're when you're honored like that uh in the team of a decade of whatever league or whatever usl and asl it just makes you remind the the sacrifices we did a lot of sacrifices myself and my family and uh it was even hard in our personal life you know it's um it, it got hard sometimes between me and my wife. You know, it, it's not easy. You're always with suitcases. You're always moving. There's a lot of uh, instability and, and sacrifice. And uh, at the end, when I read about what what was done in the last 10 years with, with what I lived in Montreal, Ottawa, San Francisco, so Park Rangers, I, I think it's... I would deserve to be at least in the top three coaches of the decade in the USL. Um, I think Gio did very well in the USL and NFL. I think uh, 
uh, Bob Lilly did very well. But if I'm not mistaken, I, I think I was the only one winning the USL and NASL. So, yeah, it's an honor. It's an honor, but it also motivates that I want to do more. I want to maybe become the only one to win the, the, the three leagues in North America. There's one left. Well, that would be a fantastic achieve- achievement for, for sure. And, I mean, it's true what you say. There is a lot of sacrifices, I think, that people don't fully understand. And with you yourself, like, we've known each other for a while. And it's like, I all the travels that, that you've done and everything that, that you have given up. If, if there was a, a young coach just entering the game just now, what would be the, the main piece of advice that you would give him? <laughs> if I'm talking like with a friend, friends, I would say, don't get married now. <laughs> Do your career, you know, go on. But because if you if you're married, you need to have a wife that is is kind of crazy in a good way. Because it's very hard for you to do a career as a coach in your city uh, with your wife having a job and and being 20 years the coach of the Montreal Impact or the Whitecaps, and that's your career. But that's not real life. Real life of a coach is you have to sometimes go to places that you think are dark and are not, or, or, or people think that it's... Uh, back and then you realize that I remember that when I left Ottawa to go to Soul Park Rangers um, I, a lot of people were saying that I took a step backwards and um, it wasn't good from my part and it was a step back but then in two years we managed to win the Western USL uh, Division Champions and then the year after the NASL championship with San Francisco. So there are moments in a career of a young coach that the only thing I would say is you have to make sure that you have the right partner next to you. If, if you don't have a partner, it's easier because now it's only a backpack and go. And then you can't be afraid of taking risks. You can't. You can't look for the perfect job and you can look for, oh, I'm just I'm going to stay here and, and look for this job. Only if these guys call me. I No, sometimes you have to go to smaller places, prove in the smaller places that you could do it and and it takes a lot of sacrifice. I mean, talking about having the, the right partner, obviously that can be both like personal with a wife, but also it can be your your right hand man, your your assistant, and you've you've worked with, with your brother Philip a lot over the years, which can be good and bad because it can obviously put a strain on on like family relationships and stuff. But I mean, how how has it been like working that closely with your your brother over all these years? Yeah, first first I, I I'm telling you this very honestly, Philip for me top three coaches in Canada. Uh, uh, being Canadian, born in Canada, uh, Phil is in the top three. Not because he's my brother. If you would talk with the people that worked with Phil, like uh, Nick Dasovich that worked with Phil at the, the, the national team levels, or Martin Rennie that worked with Phil in Indy, or even um, now Vanny that works with Phil closely every day. 
I know you're the Whitecaps coach just now and you don't want to look too far ahead but if, if you had like a dream head coaching gig that you would get I mean obviously you're mentioned a lot as a future Canadian national team coach and I, I know that that would be something that would be interest of you but I mean is that like your dream job or is is no, club football? I, I'd like to do it one day I don't know when but I just want to be what I want to do is I want to become uh, uh, an example for our young coaches. I want the people, the, the coaches that, that we're doing the B license in Canada, the A license. So we're developing coaches. And I always say developing coaches for what? To coach youth only? Canada needs more examples like my, my example. You need cold Canadian coaches that go through the USL and that go, go through the lower levels and then become assistant coaches in the MLS. And who knows head coaches in the MLS? And I would, I, my, my, when I look at the national team one day, I just look at the final part of 
going from the CP, the, the CSL back then, to the US cell, to the NAS cell, to the MLS, to the national team, and that young coaches in Canada could look at one example and say, this is possible because Mark did it, because a Canadian coach did it, and not a foreigner. Um, but I, I believe in my heart. Uh, my dream right now, Michael, I'll be very honest with you. I'm upset about winning a trophy with the Whitecaps. I want to win a trophy with the Whitecaps. That's my first dream. Uh, but I believe in my heart that down the line, I'm going to coach again outside of North America. I, I just feel it in my heart. And normally these feelings have been good with me. I don't know when, but I, I believe I'm going to coach uh, outside North America one day again. I'm pretty sure you certainly will. Thanks so much for your time today, Mark. It's always a, a pleasure like chatting to you, especially like this about things in depth and that. I know we don't often get a chance at training and stuff. Stay safe. I hope you and your family stay safe and I hope your family get back okay from, from Quebec and hope, hopefully we'll see you in person sooner rather than later. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. That's great. Take care. Mar de Santos there. Some very raw stuff from Mark and honest stuff as well, just talking about the, the strains that being a head coach can put on y- your personal life as, as well as your professional life and how it can test some marriages. And we, we know that coaches are under a lot of pressure, but you never really think of it from that side as well. They're uprooting all the time. Their job security is not fantastic. They're moving from club to club, city to city, country to country in, in some cases and as Mark said there sometimes it would be easier if it was just you and your own you just pack a backpack you get sacked from one job or you take another job and you want to just move on but that isn't always the case and one of the sad aspects of this season so far is it's kind of deprived us of seeing a team fully built by by Mark DeSantos and getting to play the way that he wants them to play and you were just kind of getting into the the feeling from the, the first couple of games. This is a squad that's really kind of bought into the way and the style that MDS wants to play. We saw some good signs of it down in LA and hopefully it won't be too, too long before we can see them on a pitch again, maybe showing us what they can do and what this, this squad is capable of. And as we touched on in last week's show, it's a chance to get all these guys super healthy and up to the same kind of level. And if MLS does get back in the summer, maybe even in the fall, Definitely going to be interesting to see what style of football MDS has this team play and just how successful that is. Because he has had his successes elsewhere. Won that 2009 USL Championship. Won that 2017 NASL Championship. And as he mentioned there, his dream is to win a trophy with the Whitecaps. To be the first guy to win a championship in all three divisions. Can he do that with the Caps? You wouldn't bet against it. He's an ambitious guy. He's very driven. I mean, he puts his mind to something. Invariably, he gets it. But we've got a lot more to come in this episode of the AFTN Soccer Show. And we'll be back with more after this. Hi, I'm Alfonso Davies, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. 
welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show. That was our new Artist of the Month for April. It is the wonderful Art Brute. A band we've featured many times on the show. They featured in Wavelength a couple of times. We've played a few of their songs as well over the years. was amazed I hadn't actually made them Artists of the, the Month last year because they are one of my all-time favourite bands. That was their debut single, Formed a Band, which you can find on their debut album, Bang Bang Rock and Roll. Now, the album was released in 2005, but that single came out on the 29th of March 2004. So just celebrating its 16th anniversary, How Time Flies. When I see them a lot in Scotland over the years before moving over, seen them over here in Vancouver as well. Lead singer Eddie Argos, my Facebook friend, Featured him on our Christmas show as well with the German band Gurr, who were, of course, our January Artists of the Month. The apple doesn't fall very far from the tree here at AFTN. But we've got four good songs from you this month from Art Brut. Very distinctive singing style, as I'm sure you'll agree. And that song also spurred on a lot of their fans to form their own bands. And there's some bands out there that basically just formed because they heard this and they thought, you know what? They can form a band, I can form a band. Maybe some of you listening to this show is going to be listening to it and go, you know what, I'm going to form a band as well. And if you do decide to do that, send us your records, we'd love to play you. And also, I've said this before in the show, but if there's any members of any Vancouver bands, or we'll throw this open to to like British Columbia or even Canadian bands, if you're listening to this show and you want to be featured in Artist of the Month or you want to be featured as a Vancouver Band of the Month, which is something that we have talked about maybe doing for a while. Get in touch with us. AFTN Canada on Twitter. AFTN Canada at Hotmail.com. You can send us an email there. So as I mentioned, that was the very first single by Art Brute. And it's kind of fitting that we played it at the start of this section. Because we're going to revisit one of my favourite features that we do every now and again here on the AFTN Soccer Show. Football Firsts. But we sit down with a Whitecaps player and look at all the firsts in their career. Their debut, their first professional goal, their first appearances for certain clubs or their first appearance overseas or pulling on the jersey of their national team. Something I've really enjoyed having some of these chats over the years. We've not done as many as I would really want to because I'd really like to delve into this and sit down and and have a a pretty long chat with with some of the guys. We've done it with Kenny Miller. I think that might have been the first one that we did and to St. Ricketts was the last one that we've done on the show. But with everything being shut down right now, this actually gives us the perfect opportunity to to do these sections the the way that I really want to do them, which is sit down for a very in-depth chat with a, a few players. And we're going to bring you one of those over the next two parts of tonight's show. And we're doing it with the third oldest player on the current Whitecaps roster. Englishman Andy Rose came through the college ranks with UCLA. Came into MLS, made his name with Seattle Sounders, went overseas, played some seasons in England and Scotland before returning to MLS in 2019, signing with the Whitecaps. And although I'm sure he's regarded by most folk as a fringe player on the Whitecaps roster, he has been an important player in the, the last couple of seasons. And I think we saw that in the last game that the Whitecaps played, where he came in as a centre-back, not his favourite position, and really did well against the LA Galaxy, helped steady that defence that looked shaky in the season opener against Sporting Kansas City. Jessica Camiri had his best game alongside of him, and he's had a very interesting and varied career. And we're going to delve into that now, so sit back, 
grab your favourite beverage, hopefully a chocolate digestive, and enjoy Andy Rose's Football Firsts. So Andy, you've had a, a very varied career, you, you've played here, you've played overseas and we're going to look at a, a lot of those things today, but first thing I want to ask you is, like, what, what are your first memories of like growing up and attending football as a kid? Yeah, I mean, first initial memories growing up, um, I suppose like most kids, it wasn't like I, I, I grew up with a... Uh, with a club straight away, you know, my dad was a, a big Tottenham fan, uh, but we didn't really live near London, so it's not like I grew up going to a bunch of matches. Um, I kind of clung on to Man United, uh, early 90s, their sort of success, and coincided with that great group of 92 um, that came through, and I was a massive David Beckham fan, always have been. And actually, my mum took me and a friend when I was really young. I must have been, I don't know, six, maybe seven, um, for a tour around Old Trafford. We, we drove up to, to Manchester, had a tour around Old Trafford, um, and that was that was really the first time I'd been there, and um, man, it was, it was just so special, and from then on, grew up kind of following United, obviously they were, um, that was a, an era of dominance for them, and, and yeah, those are kind of my first memories, um, getting, getting really into it. Now, playing the game, like what, what's your first memories of when you kind of started playing the game seriously and then knowing that you, you really wanted to be a, a professional footballer? Yeah, my, my, my family had actually moved to, um, to the States. My dad had a job opportunity in, in Chicago for a few years when, when I was um, about 10 years old and uh, my sister was a really serious youth tennis player and, and so my two sports growing up when I was a kid were, were really tennis and, and football and um, when I was in Chicago I joined kind of like your, your you know your local club team and whatnot and and just really fell in love with playing absolutely loved it was was pretty good at it um, equally loved playing tennis so I played both up until I was about 14, 15, um, at which point my family had moved back to the UK. And, yeah, I was fortunate enough to, to join Bristol City's Academy, which um, just the coaching there was fantastic. And, and you know, it was just a, an awesome environment. And, and at that point, you know, when I was 14, 15, I kind of had a feeling, okay, this is really what I want to do as a career. Um, of course, there's so much competition, especially in the UK. Um you know, we were playing the likes of, we were playing in, in essentially the top tier of, of academy football. So, you know, the Chelsea's and West Ham and whatnot and, and some really good youth academies that, that were bringing some excellent players through. And so week in, week out, I was being tested against some, some top opposition. Bristol City, uh, I was the captain of the under-16s and, and then of the under-18s. I was probably, if you look back at the teams I was part of, I don't know if people would have said, right, he's the one who's going to go on and, and have a career in the game. Um, we had some, you know, some England youth internationals, some Welsh youth internationals in in, in our academy system. Um, but yeah, certainly it was uh, it was an awesome 
platform to to be able to watch week in week out a, a team um, uh, back then the, the club were in League One sort of fighting for to get into the championship now obviously they're, they're doing really well in the championship um, but it was such a special club to, to grow up with and be part of yeah and I mean so many kids or like youth players don't make it when, when they're playing over there in the UK and I think a lot of them end up either dropping down to lawn league or they just don't play at all. But not many of them seem to have made the jump to kind of come over to, to play college soccer, which you did in 2008 at, at UCLA. I mean, wh- what was behind you doing that? And what was your first memories of y- your first game playing at college? Yeah, no, honestly, it was, a, it was the best decision of my life. And, and it all kind of stemmed from, like I said, my, my sister, actually, she... She had gone out uh, and done the the uh, NCAA um, route, and she was a college tennis player at Northwestern in Chicago, and had a really successful college career. And she's um, a few years older than me, and, and was just kind of explaining, you know, how you do it in terms of, um, you know, I was in the the English school system at the time, and so I had to to do the SAT and whatnot, and make sure everything was was um i was eligible and whatnot um, which was quite a strenuous process and i think that's probably something that deters a lot of young english players that that maybe are interested in in going that route um so no i was i was very grateful and thankful for her experiences that kind of paved the way for me to do the same thing and so when i was 17 and and i was noticing there wasn't uh you know league one back in that time was uh was a really tough league for for young players to to make their mark, and there wasn't many um, academy products from Bristol City that would get a great crack with the first team. And so, I thought it would be a, an awesome opportunity for me. I went and, and had a look at a few schools, and um, there was some interest from from some, some really great programs. UNC and Duke were two other schools that I visited, and were was really interesting going to and then I kind of stepped foot on UCLA's campus and <laughs> hopped off the plane um, and, and just thought, yeah, I could certainly spend four years in, in Los Angeles and um, it was just uh, such an awesome experience. The, the two coaches at the time came and, and visited. They watched, uh, watched me play against Southampton to make sure I was, I was someone they really wanted. Um, unfortunately, they, they offered me a, a great scholarship and and it was just sort of one of those experiences I knew at 17, 18 years old, I really didn't want to turn down. It was just such an exciting challenge. And um, like I said, for sure, the, the best decision of my life. It's led me to to have a degree. You know, I was able to, to spend my, my years there and, and come out with a bachelor's degree in sociology. Um, I met my wife there. Uh, and obviously it gave me the opportunity to, to go into MLS. So... As a whole, my experience at UCLA was was really professional. The coaching staff made sure it was a it was a program that was giving players an opportunity to come in um, and then push on into into the MLS. I think at the time it had the most MLS players had gone through there, so it was it was really just such an incredible experience. In my senior year, we got through to to the final four and of the College Cup and played with an awful lot of really talented players that made the jump uh, to the professional ranks. And, and yeah, so now I, I look back on it with really fond memories. 
I, I think as well, like in the UK, and I might just be basing this from players that I've known in Scotland, UK players aren't really known for their, their brains. So it's like they're, a lot of them, it's like if they weren't playing football, like in Scotland when it's part-time jobs at, at clubs like mine at East Fife, a lot of them just work as like bin men or like really unskilled labour. So I mean, were you always like a studious person as well? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, obviously, having spent some time in, in youth football in America and then going back to to England, you can you can definitely tell there's a difference. I mean, in the States with this whole pay-to-play process of, um, you know, parents having to pay thousands of dollars for their kids to play on youth teams. And mm. Whereas in the UK, if you're good enough and lucky enough to be part of an academy, obviously, they're making the investment in you. Uh, hoping that, you know, one day you'll be able to play for the first team. And obviously, uh, you know, it's just an entirely different system. So, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's a whole other conversation. But um, certainly it did feel like when I was playing in the UK for a lot of my teammates, it was almost like, right, you either make it at 18 at the club you're playing for, you drop down or you go and figure out something else. You know, a lot of my teammates back then finished school at 16, um, which is very different than than what it's like over here in North America, where high school goes until 18. Uh, you know, usually you at least come out with a high school diploma, um, which a lot of my teammates back then in the UK didn't have. And certainly it's just kind of, um, yeah, it's just incredibly competitive. So, you know, the U.S., uh, and the Canadian system certainly has uh, a lot of pluses in that regard where you at least have something to fall back on if, if you don't make it. Yeah, and I, I think the college system here is just so good. And like when you were at college, you, you played PDL with Seattle Wolves and then Ventura County Fusion. You ended up getting drafted by RSL in 2012, but they then traded you, of course, to, to Seattle, which is where most Whitecaps fans will have first sort of seen you play. So... You made your debut on May 5th, 2012. That was your first yeah. pro start, a home 1-0 home win against Philadelphia. What's your memories of that day? Man, it was uh, what a day, obviously. I think any any player remembers their debut clear as day. I can probably picture every touch. To be honest, it was your first game in front of whatever it was, 45, 50,000 people. It was... Uh, afternoon kickoff, a beautiful day, beautiful weather. It just so happened uh, to work out that my mum and dad were actually in Seattle visiting me that, at that point. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, which was just totally unexpected. I didn't know I was, you know, I, I knew I'd been doing really well in the reserves training and I was kind of knocking on the door and it just so happened that, that they were there that week and, and I found out, I didn't find out I was starting until day before until the Friday's training session I kind of had, had an inkling and then we went through the lineup and, and all of a sudden I was in um, and you know I felt like it was I felt so grateful and thankful especially to, to Ziggy Schmidt for, for giving me that opportunity um, the game itself was, was crazy I I um, can't remember what minute it was but it must have been I don't know seven or eight minutes into the game I went in for quite a a high tackle, but I didn't touch the guy, and I won the ball cleanly, and um, he's kind of rolled over. And <laughs> the referee's come up and given me a yellow card, and I've just said to the ref quite calmly, like, you know, trust me, that wasn't a yellow. But obviously, you're feeding off this mass 
massive adrenaline wave, the crowd, and my first experience playing in front of that sort of crowd. And then about 10 minutes later, I actually did definitely deserve a yellow card. <laughs> I felt Freddie Adu from behind. And I just thought, oh my God, what have I done? And the referee I've kind of helped Freddie to his feet. Luckily, he didn't make a massive meal of it. And um, very well could have been sent off. Wow. Fortunately for me, the, the ref said, right, that's your last one. And luckily, I mean, I look back at it and think, well, the first one definitely wasn't a yellow, but the second one probably was. So I was really lucky. And then in the end, yeah, I played for, for whatever it was, 60 minutes. So I had a, a really good game overall. Um, I think it was Mauro Rosales who, who actually scored the winner. and We won 1-0. And all in all, you know, looking back, it was, it was such an amazing moment. Um, in front of my family, I think my, my mum's heartbeat probably skipped a few beats um, on that second challenge, as mine did. But um, no, it was such a it was such an awesome uh, awesome day, awesome memory. Unfortunately, we won, and then I went on a you know I played well enough to to keep my place for for quite a few weeks. So it was great. Yeah, that would have been a very eventful memory of your first game. You'd been sent off in the first half. Oh, a few minutes after that so it was just like man it was just yeah it was wild it was just it was, it was a roller coaster up and down of emotions but um yeah i could have scored came so close but main thing was was the team won and um yeah it was just such an awesome awesome moment to be able to live it with my family as well yeah, so many players do tend to get goals or have something eventful on their debut. I think, as you say, it's just the, the adrenaline push. Well, you had to wait uh, a few months for your first MLS goal. Now, I was going to talk about your first pro goal, which was in the US Open Cup third round game against Atlanta Silverbacks. You also scored in the round of 16 against Cal FC. Then you scored in the group stages of the CONCACAF Champions League against Caledonia in a 3-1 victory. But I actually want to focus more on your, your first MLS goal, which came against the LA Galaxy on August 5th, 2012. The fourth goal in a 4-0 victory at Century Link Field in front of 60,908 fans. I mean, that just must have been something so special for you. Came on as a 73rd minute sub. 15 minutes later, you scored to make it 4-0. What, what do you remember of that? Yeah, no, that was just a special day for sure. Um, it just so happened as well that my sort of hero growing up, like we talked about, David Beckham was on the pitch, came on as a on the right side of midfield that day. And the game was already pretty much won. Um, but it was an awesome night. I mean, the, the fans are really just, just feeling it when you're winning 3-0 coming on against the LA Galaxy. Um, it was just such a cool feeling because, the team was in total control. We could afford to take some risks. And so, um, yeah, I just made a, a really good run down the right. And I think it was Mark Birch who, who played a, a first-time ball with his left foot um, right into my path. And, yeah, fortunately made, made great contact with it. And, and just one of those moments that caps off a great night for, for the team, for the fans. Yeah, just such a cool moment to be able to look back on. I still have that ball. I think it's the only, actually... The only ball I've kept, I don't keep a ton of memorabilia or whatnot from my career, but that's one thing I have kept, and my son can kick it around now, so um, yeah, it's nice to look back on. Oh, that's nice. Let's keep with the, the Seattle stuff, which is 
this is a last Seattle thing, so then all the White Cats fans listening to this will be be glad to know that. But <laughs> memories of your first cup that was won, or at least senior cup, which was the twenty fourteen US Open Cup. Seattle obviously was a team that always took that very seriously. The team lost the twenty twelve final, but you played in the the cup final in twenty fourteen. It went to extra time, hundred twenty minutes. You played all of them. September 17th, 3-1 win after extra time in Philadelphia. What do you remember of that day? Yeah, I think any time you win, a, look, at the, at the end of the day, you, every professional doesn't always get the opportunity to win trophies, but that's, that's the goal, that's the target. You want to win trophies. Um, that year was really special. We had a, a really special group of players. When I look back on my career, there's been a few years that you just feel like something great can happen. Um just the camaraderie of the group, the togetherness. It's really something I've felt. It's such a shame that our season right now has been has been cut short at the moment yeah. um, because it's, you know, we have such a, a great group of people around us. And um, 2014, certainly you just, you had that feeling and that cup final led us, you know, to the support shield as well that we won. And, and to be honest, looking back, um, we really probably should have done the treble on one MLS Cup that year because we had, such a great group and um, obviously Elbefemi Martins and Quint Dempsey leading the line. I think they both scored in extra time that day, if I remember correctly. It was a really tough game. Philadelphia obviously playing away. We had a great traveling support and I just remember the, the scenes after the game and in the dressing room and, you know, the champagne and all, everybody popping all the bottles and whatnot. That's just such a cool, fun memory to look back on and Man, it's just something, once you've kind of tasted that, that success of, of winning a trophy and holding it up, you just want more and more. Um, I've come close since then. Obviously, then that, that same year, we won the Supporters' Shield. And since then, I've been in two cup finals for Motherwell. Yeah. Um, but it's just something I I would love to feel again, to taste again in my career. So, uh, you know, whether it's Canadian Championship or, or more, it's just something I've got so much. You know, to, to be able to, to have won it, to have won something and, and to have that feeling, it's just something you you just want to pass on to all your teammates again whenever you play. So for uh, young players and whatnot, just something I really want them to be able to experience. And just fingers crossed we can we can bring that to, to the Whitecaps fan base as well. Yeah, it would be fantastic because, I mean, apart from a Voyager's Cup Canadian Championship in 2015, that's kind of been slim pickings here and I, I've grown up loving cup football my team in Scotland were like lower league but they were kind of cup specialists and they'd won the Scottish Cup and the League Cup way back in the 40s and 50s on a number of occasions so we had that history and it's like I don't feel cup football is appreciated here and it was always nice to see that Seattle took the US Open Cup seriously. I mean, I grew up in the same vein as you then because the FA Cup, especially when I was a kid, was almost as big as winning the Premier League. And obviously yeah. it's changed a bit now, but it's great to see teams taking that competition so seriously. And certainly that was my real taste of that was in Scottish football. And, you know, that first year with Motherwell, our cup runs really drove us on as a team and, and you know, in both uh, in the Bedford and then the Scottish Cup, we made it to, to the final of both. And, and honestly, it's probably my 
favourite footballing memory looking back. It was my son's first game. He was only just over a week old oh. at Hampden Park. We beat Rangers 2-0 uh, in the Betfred Cup semi-final. And it was just such a, such a special memory. You know, I think as a, as a group to get to a cup final, you just, it's something you just always remember. And obviously, for family reasons, it was so special to me, the opposition and whatnot. It was just, yeah, just when I look back on my career, it's probably so far been, been my favorite game. Just all those things kind of combined. So um, without a doubt, you know, we'll have a massive opportunity in the Canadian Championship to, to bring that. And, and it's just something that's so special. Yeah, it definitely is. I've got a new rose, I've got a good. Yes, I knew that I always would. I can't stop to mess around. i got a brand new rose in town. So some interesting stuff from Andy there, and I know what you're thinking. When's the white cap stuff coming? Well, it's coming in the next part. As we'll be delving into the white caps, past, present and future with Andy. And we'll be back with that after this. Hi, I'm Jake Norinsky, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. We love our sluts, the greatest team in Belarus. We love our sluts, Hefke Sluts. our sluts here on the AFTN Soccer Show. And that song there was the Sluts Worldwide Anthem, written by Andy Bajana for the Belarusian Premier League side FK Slutsk. Now if you listened to last week's show, you'll know that we've jumped on the Belarusian Premier League bandwagon. FK Slutsk are now our new favourite team here at AFTN. And boy, what a match did they have this morning. We're recording this show on Sunday, April the 5th. I was up at 8 o'clock watching the game, found a stream, FK Slutsk away from home at fierce rivals Isloch. The Belarusian Premier League is still playing. They're still allowing fans into the games, but fans are kind of staying away in their droves. But the stadiums are open. There's not really any restrictions stopping them going. Yes, a lot of folk think that's crazy and being irresponsible, but a lot of the fans are deciding to stay at home. Some still turning up there, but the games are being played. This is week three of the Belarus season, and the league has been making a lot of money selling broadcasting deals around the world as well to to show the games. And the game of the weekend was my beloved and your beloved FK Slutsk. A fantastic 3-2 win that moved them up to second in the table. And what a game. It started, they were a little bit under the cosh, Islock really took it to them. But Sule Mane Koanda, 
fantastic headed goal in the 16th minute, giving the Slutska a 1-0 lead. And it was a lead that they held until half-time. And they were looking fairly comfortable. I was really confident that they were going to easily run out winners here. But whatever the half-time team talk was for Islock, wow. I mean, Slutsk, they were on top. They got sloppy at the back. Nobody likes that in a Slutsk. And well, a double from Aleksandr Makis in the 48th and 58th minute put Islock back in the lead 2-1. And you're starting to think, oh, this is all unravelling now. It's all going wrong for, for the Slutsk. But then Igor Semenov... Fantastic finish, 61st minute, brought them level at 2 all. Then, 16 minutes remaining, referee, who was a little bit dodgy, I've got to say, in this game, pointed to the spot, upstepped Abdul Ghaffar Serima, slotted at home, 3-2 Slutsk, they did not give that lead up. Dreamland for sluts everywhere, the sluts were on top, coming from behind, but soon, they went down a man. Three minutes to go. Squeaky bum time. Marat Buryev sent off controversially. Substitution taking place. He's going off the pitch. Referee thinks he's time wasting. Gives him a second yellow card. No substitution. Sluts are down to 10 men. And they were really having to hold on in the closing minutes. But they were saved by a couple of big saves from goalkeeper Baris Pankratov. One of which was absolutely fantastic. Scooping the ball from under his crossbar off the goal line and around for a corner. Tell you, that would have been save of the week anywhere that football had been possibly played this weekend. It was that good a save. And it gave Sluts the three points. Up to second place. Come on, you Sluts in blue. You can join the FK Slutsk Worldwide Fans Facebook page and that will have details of all the streams and things that's happening. I watched it on Twitch this morning from someone that was streaming the game and he was doing his own commentary on it. And for all that you can say about it maybe being irresponsible for them to be playing at this time and everything about that, it was just nice to, to watch some live football again and my wife could not believe that I was getting up at 8am to watch this. I chose sluts over cuddling my wife in bed. What can I say? I mean, one thing this might do as well for some of the players is can I put them in the shop window because they've really got a literal captive audience. Folk are watching them. I think because, obviously, folk are following Sluts because of the name. And it's got a growing fan base and it's getting growing attention. There's been a lot of articles written about the team around the world this week and how the fans are adopting them. The club are going to be doing a fundraising campaign. They're going to get merchandise available for for fans to buy around the world. They're hoping as well that fans after this will, will come and visit them in Belarus. And a lot of fans are saying, we're definitely going to make this journey then. But for the actual players, I mean, they played out of their skin today because they know that they're going to have people around the world watching. And this could be a chance for some of these guys to to make a name for themselves and to, who knows, get a a bigger transfer to a bigger league. So good luck to them. There has been some murmurs this weekend, though, that the league is going to get shut down. So make the most of it while you can. Whilst it's on, we're going to be loving our sluts. We also found out as well, though, that there is football going on with fans in attendance in Burundi, the Burundi Premier League is still going. There's three games of their season to go. They're trying to get that finished, so that might be the next thing we try and dig out. If we do, we'll, we'll bring you all the details on AFTN. There's certainly no doubt in that FK Slutsk are something of a football fairy story right now. And you know what else is a football fairy story? Literally, it's Wavelength. Because this week's song comes from 1992. English punk band The Addicts. 
from their album 27, and this is a song called Football Fairy Story. there with football fairy story if that's not a chorus that's going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the week i don't know what is but it's time now to turn our attentions back to mls to the whitecaps and to andy rose's football firsts talking of then your, your time when you you went back to the uk 2016, you signed for Coventry City. You made your, your debut for there, coming on as a, a half-time sub. 2-1 home loss to Scunthorpe United on January 30th. I mean, what do you remember of playing there for the first time as a pro? Because obviously you'd come through the youth system, but I mean, it must have been very different taking the field as a, as a professional all those years later. Of course, yeah. It was, it was definitely different. I mean, it was, it was kind of a... When I left... Bristol City and I think a lot of people who had seen me growing up probably would have thought well he's, he's not he's never going to come back you know and especially as my career kind of took off in MLS um, you know I had the option in Seattle to, to sign a, a new long-term deal and it was just um, something inside of me I was about to get married and, and I was kind of looking for a new adventure um, and I kind of always had that in the back of my mind. Wow, what a cool experience it would be to, to play professionally in England, to have my family be able to, to come and watch me play. And it just worked out. I, I went to, to Coventry, and at the time, they were flying high in League One. I think yeah. I thought that they were second or third in the table. And the squad of players was incredible. Like, I had such a cool experience. Joe Cole was there. Um, Stephen Hunt, who had a great career at Reading. Um, and then you, the young talent was incredible. Jack Stevens was one of our centre-halves, who's now playing week in, week out for Southampton. Um, James Madison's probably the, the biggest name, obviously. I knew as soon as I got there and, and trained with him for, for one day, I knew one day he'd be worth 
whatever he's worth now, 50, 60 million pounds, you know, starring for Leicester City and what a fantastic player he is and, and it was a joy to play with him and Jacob Murphy, who Newcastle bought for a lot of money, he started Sheffield Wednesday. So it was just uh, Adam Armstrong, who's at Blackburn, kind of John Fletch, who's, you know, doing so well at Sheffield United now in the Premier League. It was just such a incredible group and, and what a great opportunity. Tony Mowbray was the manager who obviously had had such a great career and it was um, that first season there was just kind of, I was just trying to be a sponge and learn as much as I could and play as much as I could and um, yeah, I mean, to be honest I don't remember much of that specific game, but the experience there and, and that first year was just awesome. Yeah, and I know they've had sort of troubled times with the whole stadium issue and everything, and I mean when I was younger, it's I remember them being in, in what was the first division then, and it's like you, you just remember their history and you, you look at clubs like that and like Sunderland and Portsmouth yeah. and just how they've all dropped down now. Yeah. Kind of yeah, crazy. Yeah, it's crazy to think about, isn't it? I mean, yeah. yeah, that was another I'm with you, like when I was growing up Coventry City was a huge club and so just the opportunity to to play for a club with that sort of history and yeah it was it was great obviously yeah there were so many off field problems that especially in my in my second season there that yeah. really kind of overshadowed and kind of took precedent and you know after Tony Mowbray left I was really unfortunate with injury I had a really bad head injury that that kind of pulled me out for most of the season unfortunately and then we the club went through four different managers so it really the, the two years were kind of there was a complete 180 there and um, the second year was a really it taught me an awful lot and about how a football club needs to be run and what kind of people there needs to be to, for it to really be successful and how important togetherness is and, and all these little things that you know were great to, were really tough to go through at the time but really great to be able to look back and, and learn from but but yeah, that, that first season there was just so special. So many great players and training was just such a joy to be part of. And Footballing-wise, I just I learned so much. And you, you got your, your first goal in England on April 19th, 2016, the, the winner in a 1-0 home in over Bradford City. Yeah, it was, that's a cool memory to look back on as well because it was actually my first touch of the game. I'd just come on. It was a really oh, big wow. game for us. It's honestly probably the best goal I've ever scored. Actually, it was. Um, I'll try and dig that one out. Yeah, it's, it's a good goal. It was. Yeah, it was. It was just a volley. I think it was Jack Stevens played a long ball and um, kind of somehow got flicked into my path. And um, I've just first touch volleyed it from just outside the box um, into the top corner. It was. Yeah, it was a really cool moment. Like I said, there was unbelievable players on the pitch with me that day and. Uh, to be to be able to look back and um, yeah, to I wish obviously I could have that year. We really looking back, we, we should have got promoted and and what a change that would have made to the the trajectory of where the club was going. Yeah. Um, if we, if we had been able to get promoted, we ended up just outside of the the playoff places. But when you look back at the, the type of players that were there and the talent was on uh, that was on display, we had a couple injuries up front late in the season that kind of killed us, but. Yeah, that, that goal specifically was, was certainly something I'm to this day very proud of. Then you moved to Motherwell for the 2017-2018 season. Came to, I was going to say my neck of the woods, but it's the other side of the country because I'm from the East Coast. But 
you, you made your debut at Hamden, albeit against Queen's Park. And like my team's played Queen's Park at Hamden a lot. And, and it was weird because when we play there, there's like 600 people in a 60,000 capacity stadium. But you came on the 61st minute. It was a 5-1 League Cup win. I mean, maybe not tons to talk about from that. But I mean, just talk about just really your time at Motherwell all together and... I didn't note down about your first Motherwell goal for some weird reason, but I mean, what, what do you remember of your, your time at Motherwell, cup finals aside? Uh, Motherwell was just, uh, it was a comp- it came out of nowhere that I was, I was kind of thinking about coming back to, to the States to play and I was coming off a really bad injury at, at Coventry and, and I got a phone call from, from Motherwell and I, it never really dawned on me to go up and play in Scotland. Um, but I'd heard some good things. Actually, James Madison had just been there, um, who obviously played with the Coventry. He had been at Aberdeen on loan. And I just thought I didn't want my whole adventure of British football to to kind of finish on, on an injury like that. And, and, and the, the last year at Coventry was just such a downer in terms of what was going on with the club and whatnot. And this kind of wasn't ready to give up on that. And so... I flew up to Glasgow and, and met the manager, Stephen Robinson, who I was so impressed with. Yeah. Um, kind of got a tour around the place and third part of the stadium is like a proper old British football stadium. Yeah. So much character. And I just, I, I just kind of fell in love with it. And um, it's a real humble club, you know, like players who, who go and play there, they, they have something to, they kind of have something to prove and they try and find, you know, Diamonds in the rough, if you will, and um, I played with some really great players who have kicked on and, and really done well in their career. Now that, especially our first year, like we had uh, a guy up front named Louis Moult who got sold to Preston North End, who's now playing in the Championship. He's a great goal scorer, um, a centre back, a young centre back named Cedric Kipre, who's certainly one to to keep an eye on. He's now at Wigan Athletic and is a great centre half. And from the Ivory Coast, kind of our fans, and some really talented young Scottish players as well, as well that came through the academy system as a kid there called David Turnbull, who, like I said, when I got on the training pitch with James Madison and just kind of instantly knew, all right, this kid is, is really special. Um, I kind of got the same sense with this guy, David Turnbull, who would have been sold to Celtic for a few million in, uh, in this past window, but unfortunately had to have a, have a knee surgery, but in the next... Mm year or two he's he's going to do some really special things uh, and just in terms of my experience there it was just a real family club on all of my stops I, I know that I want to go into coaching and management when I'm done playing and so I've just tried really hard to learn from all my stops and figure out what those clubs do well maybe what they don't do well and just kind of take the best bits and, and what Motherwell did so well was they just for, for a club on a on a low budget, they just really tried to find good people who who were good at their jobs, but wanted to be there, wanted to work, had brought a great attitude every single day, and kind of links well with the fan base there that are really working class, and that's kind of the the identity we took on as a team. Just a, a group of guys who worked so hard, albeit we had some really good footballers in the side as well. Um, and we probably uh, overachieved, especially in that first year, you know, making it two cup finals that Motherwell hadn't done in, in years. But the first one, we got really unlucky to lose to Celtic 1-0. We had Cedric Keeper, who I mentioned, sent off um, after Scott Sinclair had, 
had taken a tumble in the box, which was a really dubious decision. Um, up until that point, we were right in the game and, and had, a, had a great go at them. Um, and then uh, we lost the second one to Celtic as well. But all in all, the, the experience was just exactly what I needed at that point in my career, somewhere I could just go and, and play week in, week out and be part of something special. And, and it kind of just really, after a tough year at Coventry, it gave me, uh, you know, that, that real love of playing back. And, um, yeah, I just I met some fantastic people, lifelong friends who I keep in touch with all the time. Um, it's where my son was born. You know, we, we loved living in Glasgow, my wife and I. I always say to my son, he's only two, but he's he's got a Motherwell kit and, you know, that's forever will be his first team. Um, nice. And, uh, yeah, no, it's just, it's a, it's a club, you know, I keep in touch with the manager, Stephen Robinson. He's someone I've learned an awful lot from. He's a great young uh, boss, yeah. Yeah, no, he's got, he's got a great future, absolutely. He's, um, you know, from Northern Ireland and has, has had a great experience with the national team there. Um, so without a doubt, he's got, he's got a great future ahead of him. So I can't, could never say a bad word about Motherwell. It was a great experience. Good to know as well your son qualifies to play for Scotland, so I'll, I'll keep an eye on him. <laughs> <laughs> he does. He's got Scotland, he's got England, he's got the USA. So he's got he'll have a few options one day. Now, of course, you then returned to North America with the Whitecaps for the 2019 season. And like you talked about dubious tumbles in the box, you made your debut in what was a bit of a controversial 1-0 loss at Salt Lake on March 10th. That was just, it was such a horrible start to the season because it just felt the team was just not getting any breaks at all. And I think that game was one of them. It was, for sure. It was a really tough start to the season and you know, for for a lot of different reasons, and certainly VAR didn't didn't help us in any way. Uh, a few times last season, that game in particular, um, because I actually thought I I felt really comfortable that day, and in the way we played away from home, um, Salt Lake's never an easy place to play, and never has been. Yeah. Um, and so to to come away, I think we all just felt really dejected. Um, by the decision, obviously, it being a new group, sometimes as a new group um, that don't have a lot of experience together, you need a little bit of luck just to get things off the ground and, and going. And, and obviously, things really went against us early on last season. Um, and then, obviously, the you know I, I had the unfortunate facial fracture. Yeah, a week scary, scary stuff, um, which kept me out for for six or eight weeks or so, which was which was tough because obviously when, like I said, with a new group, you, you just want to be part of it and you want to be be able to kind of turn that tide. Um, so to be out for, for that long was, was tough. But then you made a dramatic comeback, like your first game back after that, that facial fracture, Colorado, May 4th, your first Whitecaps goal and another winner as well, 3-2 uh, in Colorado. That was fun. That was, that was. I mean, it was just such a relief to be back with the boys, back amongst the group. They were so supportive, and uh, the coaching staff was just brilliant with me. They really, although because it was a weird injury, like I was, the doctors wouldn't let me have any contact basically in case I headed it and, and the fracture got worse. Um, wow! But I was keeping fit, so I was able to kind of be around the group and, and kind of off to the side every day for six weeks, doing an awful lot of running and. It was not a fun time. The, the um, strength and conditioning guys were just abusing me out on the pitch and <laughs> making me do all these 
different running drills while the boys were all playing football. It was it was tough and not a lot of fun, but the the coaching staff were brilliant and kept me involved in everything. And so yeah, to be able to come back and um, in that sort of way, and um, you know, we we actually played really well that day. I think we went two 0 up, and then obviously they came back. And um, yeah, you just want to team for that long, and you just want to contribute, and and obviously to contribute in that way and to score the goal. Um, gave me a massive boost, and um, obviously it was. I think it was our first away win of the season. So that was, yeah, it was. It was a cool moment. Obviously, I wish it. It could have really propelled us um, further in, in what we did last season. Obviously, it didn't for a lot of different reasons. But um, that that memory certainly sticks out as a good one from last year. Well, I've really enjoyed going over all your your firsts with you, um, taking a little trip down memory lane. I mean. You're still young. You still got a lot of years ahead of you. It's like, what what firsts do you still want to achieve in the game? You know, I've always uh, I've said it for a long time now. I've always been a, a team player. There's not a lot of things that are like are on my, you know, when I think about personal achievements and whatnot. When when I'm retired, I can always look. Like, you know, there's plenty of time to look back on what you've been able to do as a player. I think the best things I've done have been. Um, being part of, of great groups, being a big part of being, uh, of, you know, working with good people every day and, and sort of overachieving as a group is an incredible feeling. So we were able to do that at Motherwell. Obviously, uh, winning titles in Seattle was, was special. And, um, you know, you, you can all, it's amazing to look back on something you've won. So I want to win more. I want to experience that. We've got really great people in this organization. I want to do it with them for them, for our great fan base up here in Vancouver. My wife's going to give birth to, to a baby girl in July. And just oh, cool. like my, my son had some amazing, you know, he's been at, I think, every single match since he's been born of mine. And obviously his first one was such a special game, so I want her first one to be to be equally as special. <laughs> and, yeah, I just want to just want to win. I want to bring titles to, to Vancouver. I know the, the fan base has been yearning for it for a long time. Um, we've got a really great group, so just can't wait to, to get back on the pitch. And obviously, the first, you know, at the moment in the current climate of what's going on, the, the most important thing is that everybody stays safe and healthy, um, and, and just knows that uh, we're all we all can't wait to get back back playing in front of them soon. Yeah, I mean, it's frustrating for us. Obviously, very very frustrating for you guys, especially after such a good win down in LA. I think everyone was just bouncing after that because the team played so well. I mean, you came in and like the partnership that you and Jasser had at the back looked so solid and folk are talking about, oh, well, this is a whole different team. And now no one knows when it's going to come back. It could be the summer. I mean, realistically, it might even be later or you could maybe not even come back at all this year. I mean, what what is it like having that uncertainty? I think you just have to try and stay in as positive as possible. I think the the kind of saving grace of the whole thing for for our team is that we, like you said, we we went into this sort of break or hiatus, whatever you want to call it, on such a high. Yeah. So our feelings as a group um, are very optimistic for the future. Uh, I think that game gave us an awful lot of confidence in what we could achieve this season. Obviously, I think nobody has a crystal ball, nobody knows what the future holds in terms of when we're going to all be able to get back and, and when it's going to be safe for everyone to kind of return to, to normal life. So that's the big 
biggest thing in our minds is just making sure everyone's safe and healthy. Whatever happens next, we hope, you know, it's going to be soon uh, that we're able to get back. We, we certainly hope that this season's not going to be completely finished. Um, at this point in time, I don't think anybody's really thinking that way. So I think you just need to stay positive, um, look back on what was such a fun and great experience down in L.A., and hope that this all ends pretty soon and, and we're able to get back out there and, and reproduce those sort of performances because I think the fans, especially at BC Place, would would love to see that and would really enjoy that sort of energy, um, that sort of commitment, that fight. Uh, and you just saw it when, when Toss scored that goal, just the sort of jubilation from the group yeah. and the togetherness. Um, it was just so fun to be a part of. So to bring that home with us to BC Place is, is something we're really looking forward to. Just the very, very last thing, how how are you, you doing yourself coping with all this? Obviously, having diabetes, my dad's got that as well back in, in Scotland just now, and it's obviously a, just a, another added concern to it. So, I mean, how are you doing the family, and are you not going stir-crazy? How do you keep a, a young child entertained when they can't go outside much? <laughs> That's my biggest concern. I mean, the diabetes I can handle, and, um, you know, it's, it's keeping keeping Jack busy is the biggest thing. But fortunately for us, I think the weather has been great for my mum and dad back home in the UK. The weather's been great. My wife's parents, they're down in Los Angeles. So that kind of, when the sun's out, your spirits are a little bit higher. So yeah. we, we've got in a, in a good routine. Obviously, as a, as a team, we all need to be accountable and make sure we're doing everything we can to stay fit. The club has been brilliant in terms of providing us with, with workouts and whatnot. Um, we're all on this this app zoom and working out together uh, with the strength and conditioning coaches so i think you just everyone just needs to do do their best at the moment um i've been able to take jack out to, to some fields around us and and play some football and do the running i need to do um taking the dog to pacific spirit when i can and, and having a run yeah. woods. so look i think everyone's just just doing their best and, and making sure we're we're all first and foremost following the the rules doing what we can to help our neighbours and making sure everyone's smart and washing their hands and sort of staying away from each other, staying isolated, um, practicing social distancing, all, all this stuff that's so important that's really going to limit the time we're in this kind of difficult stage. Um, and then football-wise, just doing everything you can in your power to, to stay fit. Well, that's great. Stay safe and healthy. Thank you so much for your time today, Andy. I really enjoyed talking to you and hopefully see you back on the pitch soon. No worries, Michael. You stay safe and healthy, all right, mate? And we'll, we'll see you soon. I've got a new rose. I've got a good. Yes, I knew that. I always would. I can't stop to mess around. i got a brand new rose in town. Great stuff from Andy Rose there. That is it for this week's show, though. Hope you've enjoyed it. I'm Michael McCall. You can find me on Twitter at AFTN Canada. Read our stuff away from the numbers, AFTN.ca. Give us a follow on Instagram at AFTN Soccer and on YouTube at AFTN Canada. Like, subscribe, share. We'll be back next week with another patch show. Who knows what the week's going to bring in the world of football. Whatever happens, we'll be here to bring you the latest. But until then, thanks for listening. Take care, stay safe, stay inside and wash your hands. Bye everyone. Going to your first match is an experience you never forget.
the atmosphere of what's going on around the pitch looks beautiful and you always look and go, wow, I'd love to play here one day. If you get the bug, it's going to stay with you for life.